Last week, uh, we started our series, The Day After Christmas. And we're talking uh, for this, uh, over this Christmas season about the fact that when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, it happened at a time when things were a bit chaotic, when things weren't as it should have been. People were displaced, people were moving around trying to figure out what to do, and amongst all of that, this tiny baby was born, and because of him, everything shifted and everything changed. Last week, we started off by looking at Jesus being bought gifts from the uh, wise men. They came and they gave him gifts that they weren't necessarily helpful for him as a child, but they were recognizing who Jesus was um, as the king of everything. And they, uh, we also recognize that the current king of the region, King Herod, who ruled ruthlessly and strategically, uh, was not happy about this, uh, th- about this idea that there would be a power shift. But because of the story that we have, we have an incredible, um, incredible story that defies, defines everything in our universe and everything and helps, uh, helps us understand why we're here, what we're here for, and it all comes down to because God loves us and it first started when he sent his son into the world. So today we're going to see that at Christmas time it's not just about the birth of a baby but it's about the fact that we have the birth of a king and not just a um, you know not just someone who forgives sins and who's a conscience cleanser but someone who's to be followed in our daily walk. Now I don't want to put hands up but just uh, if this is you you'll understand this. For some of us in the room when we grew up uh, we got told to follow Jesus, we have to say a prayer. Is anyone with me on that? Maybe when you were a kid, you were invited to say something called the sinner's prayer. It was, went something like this. Jesus, I've sinned. Please forgive me. Amen. And if you were like me, when I was a kid, I made sure I said it a few times because I wanted to make sure my bases were covered. So if anything happened, I was set. Um, and then for some of you who grew up with that tradition, when you were told as a child, this is how you relate to God, you made sure that when you had kids, you went and said, for you to follow Jesus, this is what I need you to do. I need you to say this prayer, and you got your kids to say the prayer. And the thinking is, if I get my kids to say the prayer, if I can show them how to read their Bible, and if I can show them how to pray, tick, that part of the job is done. Parenting accomplished, spiritual life handled. So then later on in life, when our kids maybe have wandered away from their faith, or when people wander away from their faith, we go, at least they said the prayer. And the thing with that sort of thinking because it's a reassurance thing, is that the focus of that is all about entering in. It's all about entering in. It's all about going, one day, when you need it, you're covered. About entering into heaven in the future. And the problem when you reduce following Jesus down to saying a prayer and having insurance for when you die, is that if you actually follow Jesus through the Gospels and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it's not so much about entering to this future thing later, it's actually primarily about participating in something now. It's about being part of something today. It's about participating in what's happening here and now. So when you reduce Jesus down to a sin forgiver and a ticket to heaven, we actually opt out of the primary calling that he has on our lives and we end up becoming just believers rather than participators. And we've been invited into actually being able to be people that get to participate here and now with what God is doing in our world. Now, in the first century, this was synonymous. Believing and participating in what God was doing went together. Because they knew that when Jesus was born, a king was born. 
And when you recognize that a king was born, it means that for a king to be a king, he has to have a kingdom. And so they recognized that when Jesus was born into this earth, it wasn't just this shift in how people think or what we believe. It's actually a calling to following and living within his kingdom, an upside down kingdom, an other's first kingdom. It was a kingdom of both conscience and heart. And it's the reason that we get to celebrate Christmas now, because 2,000 years ago, these people signed in, opted in, participated in this kingdom here and now. And for 2,000 years, they've passed on this message. God loves you. You can participate and be part of his family now. Not later. Not just a say a prayer and one day maybe. You get to do it now. You get to be part of what's happening now. So let's revisit the story of Christmas. So the day after Christmas, we read in Luke chapter 2 that the reason that Christmas even happened the way that it happened with everyone going around everywhere is because the Caesar at the time wanted to basically ensure that he had all of his taxes covered. Is he getting bang for his buck? So let's count everyone and make sure that everyone's where they're meant to be. So Luke records for us, in those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, which meant a lot of counting, a lot of people. Like, you know when we have our election days and we've got to employ everyone and put on the, you know, the purple shirts and all that sort of stuff and it's a big undertaking and someone's got to man the sausages and someone's got to man the, you know, all the important stuff. So Caesar said, I just want to count everyone but to make this easier because I don't you know, track you all, can you please go back to where people know you? So if you've moved away from your home base to make sure that we count you properly, because if you go from this town to this town, how do we know that's who you really are? So go back home to the place where people know you and we can record that you exist, because I want to make sure that everyone is counted for. So everyone had to go back and register at the place of their birth, and it set the stage for the first Christmas. But when this was happening at the time, there wasn't Christmas, it wasn't fun, it was just pure chaos. People were going, I've moved over here, away from where I was born, and now we've got to travel back. So Mary, Joseph, and future baby traveled all the way back so they could go home and be counted for the census. And it's in that chaos and in that uncertainty and in a time when there wasn't a lot of peace that Jesus entered into the world. And he entered and he was a king. He wasn't a religious figure, figure. he was a king. And he oversaw a different type of kingdom. And in fact, a kingdom which, according to what the angel told Mary, would be one that would never, ever, ever end. Isn't that cool? The angel said to Mary, you're going to have a baby, he's going to be the king. And these reign and rule, it's never going to finish. It's going to go on forever and ever and ever. And then uh, hundreds of kilometers from Bethlehem, Uh, These wise men decided we've got to go and see what's happening. These educated, politically connected men went and said, something's happening, we have to go and follow this star. And they looked for a divine message in the movements of the planets and the stars, and they identified that this new king had been born. So they found out if he's a Jewish king, we've we've got to go to where the people who know where the Jewish king would be. So they went to Jerusalem. And it says in Matthew chapter 2, Magi from the east, or wise men from the east, they came to Jerusalem. And they went and they asked, so where's this king of the Jews going to be born? We saw the star, we saw it rose, and we've come to worship him. But as we saw last week with Herod, they already had a king. And when King Herod heard about this, he went, hmm, okay, this is interesting. Uh, And it says that he was disturbed. 
He was not happy because he'd done a lot of work to secure his control and his political control over that area. And so when he heard from these wise men, these politically connected people from the east, they came and said, hey, just want to check in here, current king. There's a new king coming. Uh, Where is he? To say curiosity. Herod went, "Mm, don't like that at all. So it said he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him, which is just sort of a way of saying, you know, who's going to go and say, oh, I'm not that disturbed. No, if the king's upset, everyone's upset, right? Because you better stay in line. So the birth of the king that was foretold in the stars, it signaled a regime change and the current king was not happy with that. So he went and he called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law and he went and he asked them, so where's the Messiah going to be born? I've heard this new king's coming. You guys are in charge of all this sort of stuff. When's he going to be born? What's going on there? Now, Herod swapped up because he heard about this king's being born, but he knew when he talked to these religious leaders that they're not just waiting for any king. So when he goes to them and say, when's the king going to be born? That's one thing. But he goes to them and says, when's this Messiah going to be born? When's the king, God's anointed and appointed, when is he going to be born? Because this is going to be God's final king. And when he says Messiah, when he says Christ, it's a title because he knew that this future king is going to be the one that's going to be over it all. God's one anointed king. So he asked the Magi, well, where's he going to be born? And they said about 10 kilometers away, so not too far away from Jerusalem, in Bethlehem in Judea, um, because this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means amongst the least of the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler. And then Herod called the Magi secretly, found out the exact time that the star had appeared. He wanted to make sure, he wanted to get the full picture because it's all starting to come together. When you and I read the story, if you go back and read Matthew and you read the account of what happens, it's very easy to think it just happens and it's quick and everyone's got the same narrative and it's simple, but time is passing. Herod's got other things that he, other things he is attending to. He hears about this threat. He's trying to figure that out. He's trying to talk to the local leaders. He's trying to figure out from his magi. He's trying to piece it all together. He's trying to put it all together. Because he wanted to know the age, he wanted to know the location, because he's been ruling for about 40 years at this point, and he needs to make sure that if he wants to keep ruling, and there is a threat, because for all he knows at this point, maybe there's a king, maybe it's just some people who are wrong, and that's a, you know, maybe that's part of it. So he's thinking to himself, if I know where he's born, I know how old he is, I can keep a hold of the power that I have accumulated. He wasn't just going to wait around and see what happened, sort of thing. And here's where your life and my life intersects with King Herod just a little bit. So if you didn't know, King Herod actually rebuilt the temple. So it happened about um, 20 years before Jesus was born. Um, He started constructing the temple. It took quite a while to build, and it got done when Jesus was probably in his mid-20s-ish. And so you know that part of the Bible where Jesus goes and he says, look at that temple that's been built, not a stone's going to stand. That's the temple that Herod built, and it's the new one. And so he's making a comment to say, you know, this thing that's been built, it's not going to last forever. And he makes a comment about bigger things happening in the world. But when Herod went and built the temple, he was doing it just to appease the people and to appease God. He had no intention of actually following God. He had no intention of actually obeying and submitting to God. But he was more than happy to go and say, you know what, I'll build a temple for you. I'll, 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 I'll rebuild this for you. I'll, I'll seek forgiveness in in that sort of thing with the religious side 
But Herod had no intention of actually following and submitting to the rule of God. It's one thing to go and say, I'll build a temple and sure, you may exist, you may not exist. But it's another thing to actually live as though that is the reality, to submit and surrender your will to another king. Herod said, I'm not going to do that. So to hear that another king is coming along and take that power away, he said, no, thank you. And we get this a little bit because in the same way that Herod tried to keep the spiritual and the day-to-day life separate, it's something that you and I are prone to do as well. Because it's easier in our minds, I think, at times to go, that's Sunday morning time. That's the the religious part of my life. But then there's the rest of my life. Or here's here's, my finances, here's my family, my relationships and everything. But there's the spiritual part, which is over here. But then there's the day-to-day living part over here. But when Jesus came... And when the king was born, this separation between the spiritual world over here and the other parts, the physical, the how we live day to day over here, keeping those separate when Jesus came into the world was no longer an option. When Jesus came as the king, he would establish a kingdom in the world, not just physically with how we live our lives, but spiritually in how we approach and come to God and he merged them together. Something that everyone would be invited to participate in. Not just believe and live how we want. Jesus came and said, I'm going to merge those together and how you live and what you believe are going to be enmeshed, inseparable. So the story goes on. Herod sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go find the location and come back to me. Search carefully for the child. And Herod goes, and as soon as you find him, can you just let me know I really want to go and worship him? They heard what he had said, and they went on their way. So they went on the journey, 10 kilometers, to go down to Bethlehem. The star, they saw it, it rose, and when it stopped over the place where the child was born, they went to the house, they saw the baby, and it just went, this is it. They bowed down, and they worshipped him. They bowed down in the same way that they would to a king, But they went up to this little baby. And I'd love to know how Mary and Joseph felt about this. These people come in. They're dressed really well. They seem very, very important. They've got very expensive gifts. And they've just given birth to this kid. And then all of a sudden, they're there bowing down to your child. Like, I know Mary had that interaction with the angel. But that was a while ago. And I don't know about you. You have, like, these really great experiences. And you feel like God's with you. And then time passes. And you start to go, was that really what happened? And Mary's there and going, wow, it's happening. I gave birth to this child. And people have come. And they've just bowed down. And they're saying, this is really the King of Kings. God had come in flesh and dwelt among his people to demonstrate exactly what God the Father is like. John actually later described Jesus as grace and truth all in one, as love personified. And this is the beginning of that journey. Now, the wise men were warned in a dream, don't go back to Herod because he is up to no good. So they went by their country, back to their country by another route and then as the story goes an angel came and said Mary and Joseph you guys have to get out of here something's coming and they fled down to Egypt now when Herod realized he'd been outwitted by the Magi he was furious and then we come to a part of the Christmas story that for some reason a lot of the Christmas books don't have in it 
If you've read Matthew before and you've read the story before, what we're about to look at is something you go, that's just what happened. But when you read it, it's very, very, very confronting. And it's almost, I'm a little bit like, why is it even in there? Because if Christmas is this happy time, this incredible time of God coming to earth, and you know, if you believe the current narrative, it's all happiness and gifts and presents and no bad feelings here, you can sort of go, well, why would God, in the moment of this amazing victory of having his king come down to earth, why would they put this next part in the Bible? Why did it even happen at all? But this isn't a Christmas story that's just a smile on everyone's faces. This is an account of the arrival of Jesus. And this is just what happened. It's the birth story of a king. And what's important to note here is that this is the birth of a king who is like no other king. And to prove it within the story, what the current king, Herod, does next is awful. And what Jesus does when he lives out his life, he says, I'm a king whose kingdom is like no other. I'm a king where I'm not fearful of what the future looks like and I don't need to act out of rage and I don't need to retaliate and respond to awful things. I don't need to do that sort of stuff because I'm not worried about the things that people on earth are worried about. I'm a king of a kingdom that lasts forever, that's ruled by love and relationship. A kingdom where what happens next in the story shouldn't ever happen. So Herod gave the order to go and kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and younger in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Now, if you've not read your Bible before, that's a bit of a shock, isn't it? Because that's not told in the general Christmas story. The baby was born, the gifts were given. Hooray, angels and shepherds. But part of that story as well is that when Herod figured out that he didn't know where the king was, He said, I'm going to finish any chance of me losing power and I'm going to kill every child two years old and younger in the area I knew where the king last was. And you think to yourself, that's horrible. It's horrific. It's horrendous. But what it tells us, if you follow Jesus and if you have faith, is that bad things have been happening to good and innocent people from the beginning. There is no part in our narrative of the Bible and there is no part of our current Christian faith. For those of us that follow Jesus, there's no part that it just washes away and excuses the horrible fact that horrible things happen to innocent and good people. And the fact that this is mentioned in the story of the birth of Jesus tells us this. That our faith doesn't require us to look away from cruelty, injustice, and suffering. Our faith doesn't require us to look away. When you've become a Jesus follower, it's not like all those things disappear and your life is up and to the right. And it doesn't require us to ignore and try to explain away. And this is something that Christians do. I don't know why they do this. They need to not do this. They try and explain away bad stuff. Bad stuff happens. Cruelty, injustice, and suffering happens. And trying to explain it away and sweep it under the carpet doesn't help at all. It's part of the story of the entire Bible, and it's part of our human experience. It's something we all go through, and it's something we all experience together. It's part of the story. It's woven into the fabric of the story. Bad things happening to good people doesn't contradict what you and I believe, because the Christian 
experience and the Christian faith ends with the worst possible thing happening to the best possible person. When Jesus is on the cross. So to try and explain away or ignore cruelty, injustice and suffering is actually the wrong way to go about it. As Jesus follows, we're actually required to look at that stuff and to be reminded that's why God sent Jesus. That's why he sent him. Because of the cruelty, the suffering, the injustice, because of the brokenness, a baby was born, Jesus was sent, and now we get to be people that look at that happening in our world and we get to go, that's why we have Jesus. He sent a king to lead and instruct us to a different way of living. It's the reason God sent Jesus and it's the reason we have Christmas. And Herod, in doing this awful act, in trying to secure his kingdom, ends up becoming a footnote in the story of Jesus. And it took about 40 years after all of this before the Gentile world felt this tension between the kingdom of men and the kingdom of God that was introduced by Jesus. So about 450 kilometers north of Jerusalem in Syria, there was a city called Antioch. And it was at Antioch that we actually get this term coin, Christian. It's the first time it gets mentioned in the Bible. So it wasn't, you know, we might think, oh, these people call themselves Christians early on. It's actually something that was put onto the group at the time. And the reason that they got this, um, they got this title was because there was this, this disturbing new movement happening at the time. There's a disturbing new movement where Romans and Greeks were choosing to follow a new king. 40 years after Jesus had died and rose again, uh, 10 years after Jesus died, rose again, and things are changing in the world. This new movement started happening, and these Greeks and Romans were starting to go, you know what, we're going to follow this new God. And they called him Christ, they called him Christos, the anointed one. And it was a little disturbing for the current world at that time because years earlier, this king was executed by Rome and these people were now considering him a god and they were starting to integrate this into their daily living and people didn't know what to do with it. They weren't quite sure how it was meant to work because unlike the pagan gods and the structure that they understood at the time, this new king didn't demand a sacrifice and the people were walking around actually saying, no, you don't get it. Not only is our god not demanding us to a sacrifice, but he himself was the sacrifice, and they're going, no, this doesn't, this doesn't compute. This isn't how it's meant to go. That's not how things are meant to go. And his followers believed that he was the sacrifice for sin, but he did demand something, and it was something different, and something that only a true king can actually command and demand. He was asking for allegiance and obedience. This new king, this God who had risen, who had come back to life, who was changing the world, these people going, we believe him. He was dead, now he's alive. God has stepped into our story and no longer do we have to live by the current rules and sacrifice of the gods. It's better than that. The one true God actually came to earth and sacrificed himself. And they didn't know what to do with that. But he did say, allegiance and obedience belongs to me. Because in the pagan world, Right? In the pagan world, in the non-religious world, the spiritual and the secular could stay apart very, very, very easily. See, the gods didn't care what you actually, how you behaved, and Rome didn't care who you worshipped. 
So on one hand, the pagans could live their lives and the non-religious people could live their lives going, as long as I listen to Caesar and as long as I show the gods respect, then I'm okay. Worship your gods, obey Caesar, everything works. They don't have to come together. But in Antioch, this group, they went, that doesn't work for us anymore. The divine and the secular have now collided in a way that's never going back to the way that it was. And in Jesus, in this Jewish rabbi, they have come together and these people were saying, it's no longer living your life with these separate anymore. But there is one king who is over everything with one kingdom and they are now together. How we live and what we believe belong together. You see, at the time, these citizens in Antioch, they weren't just going around changing religions. They were going along and changing their allegiances. They changed allegiance to a king who invited them to a new way of living, to an other's first way of living. And his followers would do crazy things. They would give without expecting to be paid back. They bound themselves by oath not to commit fraud or adultery or theft. They said, we're going to carry one another's burdens. We're going to forgive. They um, gathered on the first day of each week before work, not to sacrifice to God, but to sing songs of gratitude for the sacrifice of God. It was a complete shift. They ignored the cultural distinctions and the caste system of the day. They said that that doesn't work for us anymore. Everyone is created equally loved by God. There was no distinction between Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. And they would go around and call each other brothers and sisters regardless of where they were in the societal expectations. And these people started to live this out. One of their leaders, um, Peter, wrote a letter and he described it this way. He said, everybody who follows Jesus is a joint heir of his kingdom. Everybody. It doesn't matter where you started. It didn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you were. For everyone that says, Jesus is my king, we're all brothers and sisters. We're all joint heirs of his kingdom. And to know what his kingdom looks like, you've got to look at Jesus. It looked like giving without expecting to be repaid. It looked like turning the other cheek. It looked like putting other people first. In the moment when Jesus could have turned around and retaliated for what they'd done to him on the cross, He chose to forgive them. So if you have a Christian ethic which ever says payback is okay, Jesus says, I don't give you that wiggle room. I know you feel it, and I know it hurts, and I know what they did to you. I get it. But payback isn't on the cards ever for a Christian ethic. The God of the universe chose to be nailed to a cross, and his response in that moment was to forgive And that's hard to hear. And if I heard your story and I knew what you'd gone through, I'd say, yes, pay them back. They deserve everything they get. Because from a human perspective, I get that. But Jesus doesn't give us that wiggle room. He goes, I know what happened. I know the injustice, the suffering and the pain. And I know I've been through it myself. But my kingdom doesn't allow for that. (sighs) Tough, eh? But I didn't say that. Jesus said that, so we've got an issue. Take it up with him. So this wasn't just a shift in religion. This was a revolution. It was a change in everything. So in Acts 11.26, they got their title. The disciples, the followers of Jesus, were first called Christians at Antioch. 
The people are going, we're so annoyed with you. You're changing everything. You're relating to people you shouldn't be relating to. You're being kind when you shouldn't be being kind. You should just, just step in line and obey everything. But these disciples, these followers of Jesus said, we're not just living our lives with the secular and the spiritual apart. We're not just saying a sinner's prayer and hoping one day we go to heaven. Jesus is making a difference here and now. My life is changing every day because of him. And these people said, you Christians. And eventually, this term Christian became a mark that would show that someone was anti-Roman and eventually it got them persecuted. But they were persecuted not because of what they believed, but because of whom they chose to obey and how they chose to live. This was a group of people that said, I'm going to put myself second and lift you up because that's what Jesus did for me. This is a group of people that took in babies that were put out to die by exposure and take them into their house and say, I know it's tough at home, but I'm going to take this kid. I'm going to love them because they are loved by God. This is a group of people that didn't just believe Jesus is this amazing person who's one day going to save me. They said, no, 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 no. He is a kingdom bringing God who has made a new way of operating and I'm going to live according to his kingdom not the kingdom of earth any longer. It's because of how, who, who they chose to obey, not just what they believed. So, Herod understood what was at stake and he chose to resist. Did not go well for him. The Magi saw the signs and they chose to worship. And the folks in Antioch, they heard the news, they understood it, and they changed their allegiance. They chose to participate in the new thing that was happening. And what we learn is that Jesus is so much more than a forgiver of sins and more than a religious icon. He was a king. Jesus was born a king. He is a king. He is the intersection of heaven and earth. He is God personified. If at any point in your life you're wondering, what does God think about this? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. What did Jesus think about it? So the question for you and for me today is this. Is he your king? Is he my king? Have we chosen? Because at the end of the day, if he's our king, then our allegiance is to him and that changes us here and now. It's not just forgiven people that change the world. It's the people who forgive that changed the world. It's not the people who believed what was right. It was the people who put that into action and participated in his kingdom here and now. It was followers that shaped Western civilization. There were, women, there were men and women who had a holy discontent with how the world was and how people were treated. And they said, we are going to follow Jesus' kingdom ethic. And wherever that ethic took hold, life became better and safer. The reason we have hospitals, the reason we have an education system, the reason we have so many of the good things we have in our world is because people weren't satisfied with just making sure people believed the right things, but they actually wanted to participate in bringing God's kingdom to this earth. And it's the care of people that led to our hospitals. It's the desire to see people educated that led to our education system. It's people who wanted to put it into action. So if you want to be someone 
that helps make your place where you are, your community, a better place, where you want to have influence and be a light in your world, then we have to be saying, we have to be answering the question, are we willing to shift our allegiance to a new king and submit to the king who came to reverse the order of things? A king who said it's about how you love and treat one another. John, one of the disciples who knew Jesus best, summed it up really well. He said this in John 1, 4-5. He said, In him was life, and that life was the light of the entire human race. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. It didn't then, it doesn't now, and it never will. The darkness will never overcome that light. And the day after Christmas, Christmas wasn't over, the story was just beginning. A king had been born into our world. And the question that you and I have to answer is, is he your king? And if he is, then that changes everything, not in the future. Today, here and now. He has invited you and me to participate in his kingdom. He's invited us to change allegiance, to bow to him, to submit, to follow and to participate. It's an invitation to participate here and now, not later on. So this Christmas, we're celebrating Jesus, a king who's been born. The question for you and for me is, is he your king? And have we submitted to him?